everybody. Good to see all of you today. Those kids are so cute, aren't they? Families. We're blessed to have young families in our church. That's the future of the church, right? So those of us who are getting a little more mature uh, get pretty excited when we see the young ones here because part of your responsibility and mine is to make sure that Wooddale Church doesn't ever stop being a community of believers until Jesus comes. So we want to perpetuate the future. Amen? I know you probably have had this question asked of you before. I have probably asked you in some sermon at some point in time. But if you could choose to be a superhero, which superhero would you choose to be and why? And I wish we had the time to go around and hear the various responses. But I know that the New York Post did a survey and discovered that most Americans want to be who? They want to be Superman, all right? About 69% of Americans would like to be Superman. Number two is Spider-Man. That kind of surprised me. Number three, Batman. Never been a fan of him, but anyway. Number four, Captain America. And what do you think number five is? Iron Man. Very good. I heard that somewhere, right? Iron Man, okay? And... Uh, there's a craze kind of in our culture today with all the, you know, Marvel movies and superheroes that are out there and they're inventing new superheroes that are out there. And the question is, why is that? Why are we so interested in superheroes from young to old alike? Well, people who study human nature and psychologists tell us that probably one of the reasons why we're so fascinated with superheroes is because the good that we see in them is the good that we'd like to see in ourselves. And number two, we wish we had the same kind of power to take chaos and bring order out of it. To right what is wrong. So let me ask this question. If you could be whoever that superhero is you would like to be, what current chaos in your life or in the culture would you like to bring order to? Would you like to make right? That would be an interesting discussion today, wouldn't it? Because there's a lot of chaos in our culture today that we wish we could fix. But all of us know those are fictional characters, and none of us can pull our shirt back and reveal the great big S that says we are Superman or Superwoman. The truth, however, is this, that you and I, those of us who call ourselves the followers of Christ, are actually inhabited with a power that is greater than any power any super being could ever have. First John chapter 4, verse 4 tells us about that. John writes, he says, but you, talking to believers, belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people. Those people are those who are opposed to God. Because look what he says. Because the spirit who lives in you, in your spirit, the spirit who lives in you, finish it with me, please, is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. And the question I'll ask you is, do you believe that? See, a lot of times we will give mental assent to something like this, but the question is, how does it translate out in our life? What difference does it make in our lives that this truth 
is given to us, that this truth actually inhabits us. C.S. Lewis wrote something I want to share it with you. He said, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, that's the key, right? Letting God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. So what's C.S. Lewis saying? See, the whole purpose of being a Christian is nothing less than being Christ. And so this is the last message in our February series where we've been talking about making first impressions, making good impressions, whether we're talking about our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, or strangers, we always want to make a great impression for Christ because we want to attract them to Christ. And so those first few moments when we're in the space of other people, we want to impress them with Christ. We've talked about kindness. We've talked about being present in the moment. We've talked about being brave and courageous. And this morning we're talking about being Christ. What does it mean to truly be Christ, to put all these things together and truly be Christ to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our teachers, to our students, to the strangers that God allows us to encounter in our lives. How do we do that? How do we become more and more like Jesus? Well, Obviously, I can't do it without him. I have the Holy Spirit in me to help me do this, right? And obviously, I, I have truth to guide me as I do this because I have God's word given to me. And then I have the family of God who's here to help teach and encourage and challenge and correct and, and, and keep me ever pressed toward being like Jesus. But you know, there are some other things that God wants to use in your life and my life to help us become like Jesus. Romans chapter 8 tells us about this. Paul writes in verse 29, for God knew his people in advance. So God knows all about us even before we were born. We're, while we were being you know, woven, as it says in the Psalms, in our mother's womb, he already knew about us. And he chose them, so he's chosen you and me, to become like his son. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The bottom line in this is that, that God has chosen you, that, that that's God's purpose for your life, is that you and I would become and keep becoming like Christ. Now, just so you know, I went to seminary, that, that word theologically is called sanctification. And sanctification means to be set apart. So as I grow in my relationship with Christ, I should think like, behave more like, and act more like Christ until I finally stand in his presence. And someday, another big word, is I will be glorified. That is, I'll be completed. So we're in the process of becoming like Christ. So I ask you a question. I ask it of myself. It's a rhetorical question. How are you doing in that area as a person? As a husband, as a wife, as a father, a mother, a grandparent, a daughter, a boss, an employee, 
How are you doing that area of your life? Are you becoming more and more like Christ? Well, let's look at what else Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, and we know that God causes, what's this word? Everything, right? Everything to work together for the good of those who love God. Here we go again. And are called according to his purpose for them. Well, we already know what, what that purpose is. We just read it a verse ago. To become like Christ. And now what Paul's telling us in this verse, he says, look, as a believer, you can count on this, that everything you experience in life is meant to help you become more like Jesus. So I don't know what you're going through right now, what you're facing right now, but I want you to know that if you're a surrendered follower of Christ, God's allowing it in your life because he's wanting to use it as an instrument to help you become more like his son. And so the three areas we don't oftentimes think about as areas that God wants to use to help us become more like Christ are the three areas that I want to share with you today. And maybe it'll give you a different perspective as you think about some of the things that you're facing. So here, first of all, all right? God often allows trouble to teach us to trust him. And as we learn to trust him, we become more like Christ. Now, how many of you have ever had any trouble in your life? Let me see your hands. I just want to make sure I'm with hum fellow human beings, right? How many of you have a little bit of trouble in your life right now? And you're sitting next to them. Just kidding, all right? We all have trouble in our life, right? We all face troubles in our lives. In the Bible, troubles are oftentimes referred to as trials. Trials that we face in our lives that God allows us to go through. And from, you know, from the very beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we read about trials constantly that people are going through. And God allows those trials in our lives to make us more like him. You know, it's a fallacy to think that only when everything is going my way can I become like Christ. It's a fallacy to think that, that, you know, your character is built on everything going your way. Because the reality is, when everything's going my way, I tend to get filled with pride. How about you? I tend to get a little cocky, a little arrogant. I tend to think, oh my goodness, I must be doing a great job. Look at what I'm doing. And of course, that's a dangerous thing. So God allows these things in our lives to keep us humble and keep us trusting in him and keeping us away from the sin that undid humanity, the whole issue of pride. In fact, look what Paul writes in Romans. He says, we can rejoice too. <laughs> I think this is kind of, I don't know if Paul had a weird sense of humor, but he says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. How many of you get happy when you have troubles and trials, right? I don't know too many people that rejoice. I, I, I grimace when I have those things. I, I shake my head when I have those things. I get upset when I have those things, but I don't rejoice. Marcia and I had a little vacation, and, and we, we came back uh, this, this past weekend we, uh, on Friday, and, you know, it, everything went really well until the trip back. And then we used a certain airline, I won't mention its name right now, it's not Delta, 
all right? So don't worry about it, all right? Um, has something to do with the country, but anyway. Uh, <clears throat> our flight was delayed two hours going. That was okay. And then we sat at the airport for 10 hours to try to get home. We got home at 3.30 in the morning. No one was there to park our plane. No one was there to take the bags off. I had a very difficult time rejoicing. <laughs> Just want you to know that, all right? But Paul says, Paul says, if you're going to become like Christ, you must what? Rejoice. Remember, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So we can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. Why? He says, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. See, listen, God is far more interested in your character than he is in your career. We kind of get that turned around. And God is far more interested, listen to this, in your character than he is your comfort. And we get that turned around too. At least I do. Because it is character that outlasts everything else. To help us develop endurance, endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, both now and in the time to come. So whoever knew that trouble, trials, could do so much good for us? And it kind of reminds me of a potter who throws the mud on the wheel, right? And that wheel starts to spin around, and they take that clay. Imagine that clay is you and me. And they use different instruments, their hands and, and knives and other kinds of instruments to, to shape. And, and so they're kind of hurting the clay as they shape it. They're removing excess, right? They're thinning it out. They're giving it grooves. They're giving it design. But when the potter is done working with that clay, it becomes this beautiful vessel. It becomes this wonderful tool. And that's how God works with you and me. We are, we are the clay. He is the what? He's the potter. And sometimes, sometimes he, it feels like he's hurting us a bit. He's taking something from us. He's redesigning our lives in a way that we didn't expect. And he says, he says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. This is going to help you become more and more like my son, which is who I want you to be. So what you and I can ultimately say is that, and, and I like this, I think, every problem we face has a purpose. Do you believe that? Someone wrote me the other day and just said from a message that we gave a couple weekends ago, they just said, thank you, that helps me deal with the problem I'm facing right now. If I can see it as having a purpose from God, I can accept it. What we have a hard time accepting is when we face trials and we, we just feel like we shouldn't be facing this trial, that we don't deserve this trial, that, you know, why is this happening to me? We get caught in that and it's destructive for our lives. But if I look at every trial I face and I go, that has a purpose. I may not totally understand it, but that has a purpose and I know the outcome is to make me more like Christ. Then it gives me a sense of of I can go through this because I wonder what God's going to do with my life. I wonder how God's going to change my life. 
And think about Jesus. And Jesus faced a lot of trials in his life, didn't he? He went through a lot of difficulties. And, and in all those things, the question is, was he going to trust his father? You know I mean, Jesus faced that question too. If you have your Bibles, just real quick, let's look over at Mark chapter 14. Pastor Kyle said something the other day I thought was so good uh, to our staff. He just said, you know, it's wonderful to have our Bibles and our iPads and our iPhones and on the street and everywhere else, but there's just something important about making sure we have it, you know, like this, in, in a form like this, having the Word of God right in front of us like this. And so John, uh, Mark chapter 14, just, just a couple of little things. Jesus, you know, is facing the trial of his life. He's going to go to the cross. Notice what it says in verse 32. It says, they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, Peter, James, John, he says, sit here while I go and pray. Isn't it interesting that Jesus needed others when he was facing his trial? He needed to know that they'd be praying with him and for him. Look what it says in verse 34. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So Jesus, not only the sense of I need you guys to be with me, but this sense of, man, I'm feeling soul crushed right now. This is the son of God. And he come to verse 36. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done. What? Not mine. And so what does Jesus do? He proves in his trials, he proves that he's going to trust his Abba. That the Father knows what he's doing as he lets the Son go through this and face the cross. The Father's using that for our salvation. How, how do you grow, how do you and I grow in our trust with God? Let me just give you a, a, a couple of uh, ideas about what I've learned at least that, that's help, that helps me grow, especially in times of trial. I keep, I keep a spiritual journal. And I would encourage you, if you don't, I would encourage you to just maybe start thinking about keeping a spiritual journal. Now, the difference between a journal and a diary is this. A diary is, here's what I did today. Ten years from now, nobody cares. Don't leave that to your kids. All right? They don't care what you did today or yesterday or ten days ago. A journal is different. In a journal, I'm writing down the lessons that God is teaching me. Now, that people are interested in. And it's good for you to write it down. In my journal, every day, part of my journaling is, what is God teaching me from what I just read about in his word? What lesson has he taught me? And then I use it. I call how to pray today in my journal. And under it, I write down these insights, and then I pray those insights over my own family and over you and over our staff and whoever else is on my prayer list that day. But, you know, as you collect that, when you go through a trial, it's kind of fun to pull your journal out and then look at some of the things that you wrote down that God taught you. You look back at those things and it helps you deal with what you're dealing with today. So I would encourage you to consider keeping a spiritual journal. Secondly, remember there's a reward coming when you're going through trials. There's a better day coming. Look what it says in the scriptures. The re here's the word. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, say, let's all read together. 
for our present troubles are small. By the way, uh, Eugene Peterson, I stopped you, sorry, uh, in his paraphrase calls them small potatoes. All right? I mean, just think about this for a moment. Whatever you're going through and I'm going through, small potatoes compared to what? Right? Our small, say it with me, and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. What's the glory he's talking about? Becoming like Christ. And the glory we'll have when we stand before God someday. So don't forget there's a reward that's waiting for you and a reward that's waiting for me. It's pretty exciting. I came across something the other day by Sarah Groves. She's a singer-songwriter. I think she's from Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken. Ever heard of her? Uh, just let me, I'm not going to sing it for you, but let me, just, uh, let me just read to you these lyrics in one of her songs. She writes, in your hands, the pain and hurt look less like scars and more like character. Less like a prison and more like my room. Less like a casket, more like a womb. Less like dying, more like transcending. Less like fear, less like an ending. And in your hands, the pain and hurt look less like scars and more like character. That's true. God is developing your character. Number two, here we go, all right? He uses our temptations to teach us to obey him. So trials to trust him, and God uses temptations in order to teach us to obey him. Christ had to learn obedience, it says. The obedience of suffering. Now, please, let me make sure I have, and we have this all straight. God does not tempt anyone. Satan is the great tempter. Satan is one that puts temptations in front of us. But see, God comes along and he says what Satan means for evil, let's use it to make you stronger. Let's use it to build your faith and your relationship with me. It's kind of like exercising, right? It, you know, when you exercise to build muscle and strength and endurance, you need resistance. If you don't have your resistance, you cannot build that strength and you can't build that endurance. And so when I'm going through uh, a time where I'm being tempted, instead of looking at it as, oh, I hate this temptation, I look at it and I go, wow, this is a, a way for me to build my trust muscle in God. And the way I do that is God always gives me a choice. Whenever I face a temptation, I always have a choice. I can give into it, that makes me weak, or I can say no to it, and that makes me what? That makes me strong. That makes you strong. Makes us strong as a church. So let me give you some insights on dealing with temptation. Here's insight number one. Remember that it is not sin to be tempted. It's not a sin. To be tempted. All of us face temptations. Jesus faced temptation. Does that mean he was a sinner? No. The devil came to him to sought to tempt him. I think it was Martin Luther who said, you know, he's describing temptations like birds that fly. He says, he says, the birds can fly over your head, just don't let them nest in your hair. And that's why I shave my head every day. <laughs> it has really helped me overcome temptation. So we uh, will have people here to cut your hair. No, I'm just kidding. All right. But you get the idea, right? The birds that fly over. 
It's going to be in front of you. That's the world we live in. But it's what you do with it when it flies over, right? Do you just let it keep on flying or do you give it your attention? That's what's dangerous. Insight number two. Your temptation is not unique. Your temptation is not unique. That is, we all face temptations. Years and years ago, I was involved in the intervention of a, a friend who was an alcoholic. And, uh, and, and in a way to help them and encourage them, I would go to AA meetings once in a while with them. Which is, by the way, a fascinating place. In, in, in essence, every church should be like an AA meeting. Because we are all sinners, right? None of us are unique sinners. We are all sinners. But every once in a while in an AA meeting, somebody would get up and they would start to talk about their situation as though nobody faced what they were facing. Therefore, that's why they were driven to drink. And I love the authenticity of AA meetings because somebody else would stand up and they'd say, listen, friend, I hate to tell you this, but you're just a plain old drunk like the rest of us. And it just equalized everybody. Your temptation is not unique to you. We all face temptations. Now, maybe you're more tempted by some things than I am by some things, but we are all, you know, we all face temptations. It is part of life. And the question is, am I going to allow my temptation to have victory over me, or will I allow it to be a tool that can be used to make me victorious in Christ because I've been given an option. I can make a choice. Which takes us to the third insight, and that is this. You'll never outgrow temptation. <laughs> no matter how old you get, right? No matter how old you get, you never outgrow it. It is, it is our nature to be tempted. You say, well, I, those are wonderful insights, but I didn't get a lot of help from that. All you basically told me is that, you know, being tempted is not a sin, but if I give in to temptation, that's a problem. I have temptations like everybody else has temptations. I'll have temptations till I die. Where's the help? Where's the hope in this? Well, how do you overcome these things? The answer is, look at the example of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. As Jesus was facing temptation, what did he say? He says, get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the scripture says, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Here's the key to going getting past temptation is to love God more than the temptation. Is to cultivate your love for God so that you love God more than that person or that thing that is tempting you in that moment. And how do you love God more? By realizing how much God loves you. So the question is, do I love God more than my career? Do I love God more than pleasure, more than sex in a sexualized culture? Do I love God more than money? Do I love God more than success? See why it's so important to be a worshiping person, a person who's worshiping God, a person who's loving God and letting God love them, developing and focusing on that relationship of learning to be, as we said earlier, being present with God, aware of God's presence, that he's chosen us. Every time we succumb to temptation, you know what it means? It means that we loved that thing or that person or that experience more than we loved God. And will God forgive us when we succumb to temptation? Of course he will. 
Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, you know, sometimes the best way to overcome temptation is to, is to use this power that God's given us called choice. You know, the most powerful thing God gave you and me is our will. And our will is what he's given us to overcome temptation. And his will is that we see no to it. And his will is that we walk away from it and walk with him in it. You and I live in one of the most temp temptation-filled cultures of all times in this country. And it takes, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of strength. It takes a lot of willpower to say no to all the kinds of temptations we're facing today and say yes to God. But the more you say yes to God, the stronger you become. And the greater and the deeper your faith becomes. Another thing is simply this. Not only love God more than the temptation you face, but you know, another thing is keep focused on good thoughts. Philippians 4, 8, 9. Get your mind, get your mind away from the bad thoughts, the negative things, the tempting things, and, and keep your mind focused on the good things. That's why we said it's so important to have our minds in the present, in the now, right now. You have a choice every day where your mind's going to go. But your mind is like a muscle. You have to exercise it, and it takes some work. Your mind, I told you this before, my mind, by default, always gravitate toward negative things. And by default, our minds always gravitate, listen carefully, to sensual things. So just like when I... When I when I know I need to go and work out, I've actually got to go to the gym. I've actually got to lift those weights. I've actually got to experience the pain and the sweat that goes with them. I also have to exercise the muscle of choice and decide I'm going to focus this mind and mind on what is true and what is good and what is pure and not on the things that could tear me down. And there's some of you today, it's a huge struggle. You have a very undisciplined mind. You let it lead you, and it wanders everywhere else instead of your, using your will, God's spirit in your life to, to move your mind to the good things, the right things. And it's a battle all of us face. And we need to exercise our minds in the right way. All right, number three, I'm running out of time. Get, uh, well, here's another example. I was going to skip this, but get a spiritual partner, okay? Get somebody to help you stay accountable to overcome temptation, all right? Number three. Here we go. God uses trespasses to teach us forgiveness, which makes us more like Christ. So he uses trials to teach us what? Are you with me? <laughs> Trust. He uses temptations to help us develop. Oh, I failed. <laughs> Obedience. All right? And he allows trespasses, he uses trespasses, listen, against us to build into us forgiveness because we are never more like Christ. We never make a greater impression on others than when we are forgiving. You know, it says what in the Lord's Prayer? And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
So what do I mean when I say people who trespass against us? I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are people out there who want to hurt you. Some of them are in your family. Some of them are your friends. Some of them are your neighbors. Some of them are at work. Some of them are at school. Some of them are absolute strangers. But there are people out there who want to trespass against you. They want to trespass against you with their words, with their gossip, with their actions, with all kinds of ways. And, and, and when we get trespassed against us, what's the thing you want to do? Retaliate. That was not hard to come up with, was it? <laughs> right? Because we all feel it. We all know. We all experience. We, you know, we want to get even. You did this to me, I'll do this to you. But what makes us more like Christ is when we behave like Jesus behaved when he was trespassed against. So let's look at a couple of insights that can help us in this. Always remember that God has forgiven you when you feel like getting even with somebody else. Always remember God has forgiven you. That's what gives us the capacity then to be able to forgive others, right? Ephesians 4.32 says this. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Insight number two. Always remember, insight number two, always remember that God is in control. That no matter what is happening to you right now or is going to happen in your life, God is in control. God knows what he's doing. You know, one of the greatest illustrations of this is Joseph in the Old Testament. I love the story of Joseph because it teaches us so much about these things. You know, Joseph, talk about a guy that was trespassed against by his own brothers. Then trespassed against by, by Potiphar's wife and ends up in a prison. Talk about a man who faced trials, a man who faced temptations. And yet, in Genesis 50, when his brothers finally show up in Egypt after Joseph is let out of prison, and he's now second in command, what does he do? He looks at them and he says, don't be angry with yourselves for what you did to me. God had a purpose in it. That is so that he would use me to rescue you. And I forgive you. Who does that remind you of? Reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? Who, though he was trespassed against in the most brutal ways, ultimately leaving him on the cross, from the cross he looked down, and what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Listen, you and I are never more like Jesus to our family, to our friends, to total strangers than when they see us trusting him in the midst of a trial. Than when they see us obeying him rather than giving in to temptations that are around us. Than when they see us forgiving when we might have every right to retaliate and get even. You and I live like that, I'm promising you. It will bring revival. It'll bring change. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just ask that you would help us 
lead this place with a decision in our hearts and in our minds to be men and women of young, and young people who make the best impression by being kind, by being present, by being brave, by being Jesus, in whose name we pray.